Good afternoon. I kept saying good morning at the door. It's just habit. It is an honor to, to preach this evening. And there are certain topics that when we gather around God's Word, you feel very, very inadequate. And this is one of them. You know, tonight we are going to be attending Calvary. And as a result, you feel very small and that in the natural you can't really do it justice. But I trust the Lord will be with us tonight. I trust he will minister to us tonight. I've been praying during the week that tonight wouldn't just be like a Teflon moment. It'd be one of those moments, I've heard this before, I've heard it before. I pray that we will gather around God's word this evening as if it just happened yesterday. That it will be fresh for us. And so if you have a Bible, let's turn please to Isaiah chapter 53. And I think this is one of the most amazing chapters in the whole Bible. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said that this chapter is the Bible in miniature and the gospel in essence. Kyle Yates, professor of Old Testament theology at Southern Seminary in the U.S. said that this scripture is the Mount Everest of Old Testament prophecy. And Franz Dalich, a German scholar, simply said this. He said, this chapter looks as if it's been written beneath the cross upon Golgotha itself. And it has. All this that I'm about to read was prophesied 700 years before Jesus ever even existed. And yet it's as if it was talked about on the cross and at Golgotha itself. Let's attend to Isaiah 53. This is the word of the Lord. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, 
he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear the iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Lord, I I do thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray as we preach our way through this passage this evening, I pray that our hearts will be freshly affected. Lord, as we survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, and as we do from the perspective of Isaiah, oh Lord, do know what, what no preacher can do. Open eyes. Speak to hearts. Cultivate a heart that is fresh for you and enthused with you. Lord, be with us by your grace, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the things that we used to do in our home when our children were little is we used to read them books. As they got older, we graduated to movies. But when they were very small, we used to spend time reading with them and And one of the things we used to love to read to them was the Chronicles of Narnia. For any of you that know and have read these books, you will understand their excitement as these young children went through the wardrobe and had this whole world of Narnia open up before them. I remember when Josh was about four or five years old, I would get him from work and he would come running up with the book, the children's book, Narnia. Amy would want to hear it as well on the bed. Lydia was too small, she went to bed. But we would gather on their bed. And we would read to them about Narnia. And they would be so excited. And likewise, I was also very excited to read it to them. Because for any of you that are more aware of the Chronicles of Narnia, particularly the line in which of the wardrobe, it is a picture of Christ and him crucified. Aslan, all the way through the book, is portrayed as Jesus. The white witch is Satan. The stone table is the cross upon which we died. Everything that is taking place is a picture, an allegory of what Christ has done for us. And so I decided this evening I would read you a portion with my kids present. So this is going to be a story time moment. And this is the moment in Narnia that most portrays the suffering of the great Aslan, the suffering of Jesus. This is what he writes. A great crowd of people was standing all round the stone table, And though the moon was shining, many of them carried torches which burned with evil-looking red flames and black smoke. But such people, ogres with monstrous teeth and wolves and bull-headed men, spirits of evil trees and poisonous plants and other creatures whom I won't describe, because if I did, the grown-ups would probably not let you read this book. In fact, here were all those who were on the witch's side and whom the wolf had summoned at her command. And right in the middle, standing by the table, was the witch herself. A howl and a gibber of dismay went up from the creatures when they first saw the great lion pacing towards them. And for a moment, even the witch seemed to be struck with fear. Then she recovered herself and gave a wild, fierce laugh. The fool, she cried, the fool has come, bind him fast. Lucy and Susan held their breaths, waiting for Aslan's roar and his spring upon his enemies. But it never came. Four hags, grinning and leering, yet approached him. Bind him, I say, repeated the white witch. 
The hags made a dart at him and shrieked with triumph when they found that he made no resistance at all. The others, evil dwarves and apes, rushed in to help them. And between them, they rolled the huge lion over on his back and tied all his four paws together, shouting and cheering as if they had done something brave. Though had the lion chosen, one of those paws could have been the death of them all. But he made no noise, even when the enemies straining and tugging, pulled the cord so tight that they cut into his flesh. Then they began to drag him towards the stone table. Stop, said the witch. Let him first be shaved. Another roar of mean laughter went up from her followers as an ogre with a pair of shears came forward and squatted down by Aslan's head. Snip, snip went the shears and masses of curling gold began to fall to the ground. Oh, How can they, said Lucy, tears streaming down her cheeks. For now that the first shock was over, the shorn face of Aslan looked to her braver and more beautiful and more patient than ever before. Muzzle him, said the witch. And even now as they worked about his face, putting on the muzzle, one bite from his jaws would have cost two or three of them their hands. But he never moved. And this seemed to enrage all that rabbit. Everyone was at him now. Those who had been afraid to come near him, even after he was bound, began to find their courage. And for a few minutes, the two girls could not even see him. So thickly was he surrounded by the whole crowd of creatures, kicking him, hitting him, spitting on him, jeering at him. At last, the rabble had had enough. They began to drag the bound and muzzled lion to the stone table, some pulling and some pushing. The cowards, sobbed Lucy. Are they still afraid of him, even now? When Aslan had been tied, and tied so that he was a really mass of cords on the flat stone, a hush fell on the crowd. Four hags holding four torches stood at the corners of the table. The witch bared her arms as if she had bared them the previous night when it had been Edmund instead of Aslan. Then she began to wet her knife. At last she drew near. She stood by Aslan's head, Her face was working and twitching with passion, but his looked up at the sky, still quiet, neither angry nor afraid, but so very sad. Then, just before she gave the blow, she stooped down and said in a quivering voice, And now, who has won? Fool! Did you think that by all this you would save the human traitor? Now I will kill you instead of him as our pact was, and so the deep magic will be appeased. But when you are dead, what will prevent me from killing him as well? And who will take him out of my hand then? Understand that you have given me Narnia forever. You have lost your own life and you have not saved his. In that knowledge, despair and die. It's a most incredible picture, an allegory, a metaphor of what Christ has done, the great Aslan. And it's just a few moments on from this, just a few more pages on, that Susan infamously asks, but what does it all mean? She had seen the great Aslan die, but she just couldn't get her head around it. I've seen him suffer. He, He could have struck back, but he never did. What does it all mean? I submit to you a more important question does not 
exist. As we get our head around Aslan being Jesus all the way through the story, a most important question does not exist. Why did the Savior, why did Jesus Christ have to suffer in the way he did? What does it all mean? And what I so love about Isaiah 53 is the reality that right here, 700 years before Jesus was even born, we discover what it all means. What was taking place? Derek Tidball, in his book, The Message of the Cross, says here then, in Isaiah 53, is one of the great peaks of the Old Testament's revelation of God. For from this vantage point, we can obtain a clear view of his work on the far-off summit of Calvary and gain a definitive perspective on its meaning. Three points this morning, from or this evening, or this afternoon, or wherever we are. Number one, the appearance. Number two, the reality. And then number three, the response. But as we look at it together and just walk through the text, I really come to it with one hope, and it's that we will be freshly affected this evening by the cross. That it won't just be, oh yeah, I get it, I get it. But it will be as if we were there. And that we will understand what it all means. Not just in a way that it affects our brains, but it affects our heart to the very core of who we are. Three points then, and here's the first. Number one, the appearance, verses one through three. Alec Motyer, in his commentary on Isaiah, describes verses one to three as suffering observed and misunderstood. There's a wonderful description of what happens in these opening three verses. It is suffering observed. It is obvious to all, but it is misunderstood. It doesn't make any sense to the original reader that it's talking about. Look with me then at verses 2 through 3. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. You know, you would have thought when Jesus Christ came to earth as God incarnate, as literally God in the flesh, the fullness of him who fills all things. You would have thought when the Savior, the Messiah, the King comes to earth that there would be fanfare and party and praise. But 700 years before Jesus ever walks the earth, he explains that when he arrives, there won't be fanfare, there won't be party. No, he will be despised, he will be rejected, and he will not be esteemed. Why? Well, quite simply, because by human standards... Jesus would be unimpressive. And so by merely observing the Savior according to human wisdom, apart from divine revelation, it would be to see a man who is significantly unimpressive. In the natural, as Isaiah details for us, the Savior would appear unimpressive to all. Verse 2, at the start of that, it's talking about his birth and his background. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. It's talking about his birth and his background. It's explaining that this Messiah to come, this Christ, he's going to be unimpressive. 700 years on, that's exactly what happened to Jesus. As they looked at Jesus, the whole banner was, can anything good really come out of Nazareth? 
You're so unimpressive. Is this just not the carpenter's son? I knew him. This is definitely not him. And then at the second half of the same verse, he starts to address his appearance. For he, Jesus, had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus' view and the way he looked would be unimpressive as well. There would not be anything striking or attractive or handsome about Jesus. He looked just like every other regular Palestinian Jew. If you saw a photo of Jesus with his disciples, you wouldn't be able to tell which one is him. He's just a regular guy. And the fruit of that is that when he would come, verse 3, he would be despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. When Jesus Christ came, that is exactly what happened. He was despised and rejected by men. Many thought he was a complete liar. He was a fraud. They hated for what he stood for. You're claiming to be God. You're clearly not. You're lying. And if you're not lying, you're a lunatic. And they're both bad. They wanted nothing to do with Jesus. And so they esteemed him not and despised him. Some 700 years on, that's exactly what happened. And Isaiah, verse 1, knew that this was always going to happen. That's why he says in verse 1, Who has believed what he has heard from us? He's basically saying, I'm about to tell you what's going to happen. No one's going to believe that that is Jesus. No one's going to believe it. See, to really understand what's going on, you have to get into the headspace, or walk in the sandals, if you will, of the original recipients of Isaiah 53. In 700 BC, what are they walking through? What is taking place Well, in the book of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters are all primarily about judgment. Isaiah, through a prophetic gift from the Lord, is warning God's people. Listen, I'm warning you. You need to follow his commands. You need to stay true to the word. And if you don't, you will be judged, you will be exiled, and you'll go to Babylon. So what do they do? They don't listen. And they get exiled. And they go to Babylon. But then in chapter 40, through again the prophetic gift that Isaiah has, in chapter 40, there's a promise of deliverance. Chapter 40 starts with the words, comfort, comfort my people. He's explaining that though you are going to exile as a punishment for your sin, there is comfort and there is promise of deliverance. And what you read as the story goes on is Isaiah promises a king to come, a messiah, a Christ, a one who will be wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, a prince of peace, all the well-known verses that we know about and we often celebrate at Christmas. But here's the thing. If you're a Jew, 700 BC, you hear all those words, everlasting father, prince of peace, mighty God, what are you imagining? You're imagining an incredible king. A king who's going to come and rule, a king that's going to kick everybody out, a king that's going to take his rightful place, a king that's powerful and is going to take his place on the throne. They are wholeheartedly expecting this promised Messiah to come to be a mighty warrior king. And then Isaiah comes and he says, he's not going to be like that. And so he says in verse 1, Who has believed what he has heard from us? He's explaining, no one is going to believe that this is him. And 700 years on, what happens? 
No one believes this is him. They despised him. They rejected him. They esteemed him not. And my friends, is that not still happening to this day? Jesus, irrelevant. What has he got to do with anything? The vast majority of our world still despises him, still rejects him, still esteems him not. This is still happening to this day, exactly like Isaiah said it always would. This is suffering revealed, but misunderstood. People just can't see it. Who is this king of glory? And then in verses 4 through 12, Isaiah then tours us through the reality of who he really is, which is my second point, number two, the reality. And beginning in verse 4 and continuing all the way through to verse 12, Isaiah then now takes us all the way to Calvary and to an old rugged cross upon which the Prince of Glory died and begins to pull the curtain back then on the realities of what this all means. Why he died. Why he would suffer like he did. What does it all mean? So what does it mean? Well, there's three things that he talks about in these, in these verses. And the first is this. What it means is that he, as the Messiah, he suffered as our sin bearer. Look at verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. My friends, pay attention, at least ten times in those three verses, we come face to face with the personal pronouns, our, we, and us. They are our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities. We have gone astray. Each one of us has gone his own way. This is the divine reality of what he has done for us. And what you are seeing here is the important language of substitution. He was there for us. And it is so important that we see that. It's so important that we understand the part that we play in the suffering of our Savior. And it's so important, and yet sometimes so difficult to get our heads around. Because I think one of our Achilles heels in our humanity, unless you're really, really different from me, is we can find ourselves thinking, what on earth has that got to do with me? It's not my fault. It's like a human trait, isn't it? I remember some years ago hearing about the following amusing story of a boy called Timmy. Young six-year-old Timmy, this is his story. It says, in late August 1992, Hurricane Andrew ripped through southern Florida, leveling many homes and buildings that had stood in its path. In the quiet aftermath, a young mother stepped onto her porch to survey the damage, with her little six-year-old boy named Timmy. The young woman looked at the community that used to be, amazed at the rubble that had been replaced by, that had replaced so many homes, and then she began to wonder, 
What could be going through the mind of this young child seeing such severe destruction? Timmy saw his mother looking down at him and he got rather nervous. And so before she could even say a word, he piped up and simply said, No, mum, I didn't do it. (laughs) Young Timmy was instantly concerned that his mum thought he must have caused all this damage. And immediately, without being trained to do this, his heart response is, it's nothing to do with me. I think we can be exactly the same. And we can see the cross and understand the cross and see the moment in which the Prince of Glory died and can walk away going, hey, that's nothing to do with me. Whereas Isaiah is simply unwilling to let us do that. Because he wants you to know it has everything to do with you. Not just plurally. It has everything to do with you individually. Isaiah wants you to understand. He is there as your son, sin bearer. What we have here is the language, as I said before, of substitution. He is there for our sin, for our sorrows, for our grief. And my friends, when you stop and stare at Calvary, realizing I should have been there, but he's there for me. That should affect our hearts. So I remember some years ago hearing a a true story of two young boys who were playing on the banks of the Mississippi River. Um, Every year in the United States, the Mississippi River goes up and down. That's the way it works. But at different seasons, you get great sandbanks on the side of the Mississippi River. And these children lived in Mississippi with their mum. And so they would loosely like to go out and play on the sand, understandably. The challenge is some of the sand is quite dangerous because if you go to the wrong places, it can be quite unstable, so it starts to fill in. But anyway, these kids convinced their mum that they would be okay, and so off they went. The only commitment was, please be back by 6 o'clock for dinner. Well, 6 o'clock came, no sign of the boys. 6.15 came, no sign of the boys. 6.30 came, still no sign of the boys, and the mum starts to get really panicky. She calls a friend. She's shouting out the back window to their name. She's calling their names. There's no sign of any of these boys. She calls the police, and a great search party begins to go up and down the Mississippi River. She knows they won't have gone far. They've got to be around here somewhere. And as the groups go through, just calling these boys' names, no one's getting back to them, and eventually they see over in the distance the head of one of the boys. So they run up to him, and his head is literally poking out the sand. What had taken place is as they're running, everybody's worst fear. It starts to fill in around them, and they just can't get out. However much they're trying, it starts to fill in around them. And so they see the head of this boy, and they run up to him, and they say, Son, where is your brother? And he can't breathe, so they start to dig him out. And as soon as they start to dig him out, tears start to come down his face. And like, where is your brother? And he simply says... I'm standing on his shoulders. The older brother, realizing they weren't going to get out, instructed his younger brother, stand on my shoulders so that you will be saved. That is just a small illustration and shadow of what Jesus has done for us. 
He's not just at Calvary for just these random people. He's at Calvary saying to you, hey, listen, stand on my shoulders. And when he went to Calvary in our place as our sin bearer, it wasn't like a loving, brotherly relationship. The Bible says we hated him at that point. We were his enemies. We despised him. But at Calvary's hanging in our place, putting us on his shoulders so that we may live. And he dies in our place. What does it all mean? What does all this suffering mean? Well, first and foremost, it means that he suffered as our sin bearer. But that's not all. Number two, we recognize that he suffered in innocence, verses 7 through 9. He was innocent. Look, at, look with me. It says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. My friends, his death, his substitutionary death in our place was completely innocent. He didn't need to die for his own sins. He had done no wrong. His death then was not some capitulation to defeat. No, he simply chose not to fight back. For just like the great Aslan, as he walked towards Calvary, he could have called down a myriad of angels in a moment and completely gone free. A mere swipe of his paw or a roar from his face could have destroyed everybody there and then. He could have gone free. But this is the moment in time when the roar never came. Why? Well, because he simply chose not to fight back. Why? Why did he choose not to fight back? Well... Because herein lies the love of the Jesus Christ, Savior of the world, for you. That's why the roar never came. That's why he never spoke back. Because of his love for you. As the famous old hymn says, Help me understand it. Help me take it in. What it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. Help me understand it. What did it mean to thee, the Holy One, to bear away our sin? It, well, it meant relational abandonment. The Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus actually died, was one of those horrific nights of his entire life. As it wasn't heaven that opened up before him, it was the horrors of hell. He came face to face with the cup of God's wrath that he would soon be drinking. It says that he was sweating like drops of blood. And as he walks in, he staggers. And his closest three friends, they've only got one job. Just stay awake and pray for me. Three times he goes back. They're asleep. Already their abandonment has begun. Jesus is walking through Calvary. Completely alone. It's just him. Like a lamb 
to the slaughter. He's so distressed in his soul that he falls to his face and sweat becomes like drops of blood. And then he finally hangs on the cross crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Overwhelmed by the agony, not primarily of physical pain, although that would be intense, but the pain of what it means for the Father to turn his face away and pour out his wrath on him. He's overwhelmed. But he stays. Why? Because herein lies the love of the Savior for you. It's astounding. And pay attention when you get to verse 10, you get to see the love of the Father for you as well. See, the Savior's love for us is immediately obvious. Every time we see a picture like that and we imagine the cross, the Savior's love for us is blindly obvious, is it not? But the love of the Father can be missed. Here is the love of the Father, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord, the Father, to crush him. He has put him to grief. I have five children, and each of my five children, in different ways, bring me great joy. And because they bring me great joy... When they suffer, just like for you as parents, I don't like it very much. When they're little, they suffer in many different ways. When they fall over and hurt themselves, when they get older, they don't hurt themselves like that anymore, but they suffer in different ways, and it can break your heart, can it not? If that breaks our hearts and our humanity to watch our kids suffer, imagine what the father went through on the night where Jesus died. Imagine his anguish, because this is his son. Just three years earlier, you remember the great baptism? Jesus Christ gets baptized. God the Father gets so excited, and it says the heavens were rendered, literally ripped apart, and the Father speaks, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He's so thrilled with his son. It's like a graduation moment. Hey, son, you're doing good. He's loved him. Before the earth was even on its axis. He is the apple of his eye. So what we see here is the love of the Father for us as well. The Father was the one who poured his wrath out on his Son instead of you. Why? Because he loves you as well. My friends, when you are tempted to doubt God's love for you, I urge you to walk towards Isaiah 53 and behold the love of God for you. It is overwhelming as you realize his profound and incredible love for each one of us by name. And then, as the final part of understanding what it all means, you discover in verses, verse 12 that though he was crushed, He was also victorious. (laughs) Look with me at verse 12. It says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You know, this is incredible imagery, and it was very deliberate imagery by Isaiah. 
It is the imagery of a victorious king sharing his spoils with his allies. That is exactly what Jesus Christ made possible in and through the cross. When he cried out on the cross, it is finished. What was finished? Well, one of the main things that was finished is he had completed what he was sent by the Father to do. This is the moment that he would give his life away as a ransom for many. This is the moment where he would make it possible that all those who put their faith in him as a Lord and Savior would be forgiven and adopted into the family of God and redeemed into God's presence and know for sure that heaven is home. It is finished. And what are the spoils of the king? It is the gifts of salvation, forgiveness, redemption, adoption. Heaven will be your home. It's a deliberate language of a victorious king who's won the war, giving out the gifts. And 700 years before Jesus even walked the earth, that is exactly what Isaiah prophesied that he will do. What does this mean? Here's what this means. It means that through the sufferings of Jesus Christ, complete salvation can now be ours. This is good news. This is why it's called Good Friday. Because although it is sad and grievous what happened to the Savior, what He has done for us is overwhelmingly glorious. He died in our place. He died as our sin bearer. And what that means is through his sufferings that have been victorious, complete salvation can now be ours. And so how do we respond? Point three, just to close. What is the response? Well, what does this all mean? As I said at the start from Franz Dalich, this chapter looks as if it has been written beneath the cross upon Golgotha itself. We are transported on Isaiah 53 all the way to Calvary. What does it all mean? When it all washes out, what does it mean for us? Well, well, two things. Two things that I think the Lord wants us to realize from Isaiah 53 and to the pointer to Calvary. The first thing is this. It's understanding that Jesus is more incredible than you could have ever imagined. He's more amazing than you could have ever thought possible. As we read in verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Listen, you can go ahead and assert your name there. He died as your substitutionary sacrifice. He was crushed and yet victorious. What does that mean? What that means is he is more incredible than we could have ever asked or imagined. He made it possible for salvation to be completely ours. He made it possible for you and for me to be completely forgiven of our sin before the Father. He made it possible to come into relationship with God, to actually know Him as friend and Father and as Redeemer. He made it possible for us to come into a relationship with the actual God who actually made us and sustains us even now so that your heart is beating and that you may know Him as friend and King. And He made it possible That through his substitutionary death, you can honestly say, heaven will be my home. And I've been born again to that living hope. How do you get born again? Here's how. Romans 10 verse 9 
says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Boom. I love that. So do I have to go to church every week? Well, you can do. Doesn't make you a Christian. I go to McDonald's a lot. Doesn't make me a burger. There's a lot of things in our lives that we do. I think this is what makes me a Christian. No, what makes you a Christian is realizing Jesus Christ died in my place. He is my substitutionary sacrifice and I love him and I want him to be the king of my life and I want to follow him. Boom, that makes you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is when you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It completely changes your life when you do it, but you're not saved because you're changed, you're saved because of your faith. And that's what Jesus offers you. Jesus is more incredible than you could have ever imagined. And I want to encourage you, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you don't really know him, then he wants to know you, which is why he came. So I urge you to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Make him your king. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. I mean it, that he died in your place and he now lives at the right hand of the Father. Put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior and you will be saved. That's how we all got here too. <laughs> That's how it happened. At some point in our lives, whether it be somebody who's brought you this evening or a friend or you've just seen us online, just ask people around, how did you become a Christian? Well, at some point they came to a service just like you're doing right now and they realized this is true. And it changed their lives. What this all means by response is that Jesus is more incredible than you could have ever imagined. And then finally, just in closing, what it all means is that you are more loved than you could have ever thought possible. He died in innocence. He hadn't done anything wrong. And he died as your sin bearer. A swipe of his hand. A roar could have changed it in a moment. He could have called down in a blink of an eye a myriad of angels who the Bible tells us are waiting on the edge. If you want it to stop, we'll come. But that roar never came. Why? Well, because of his love for you. Because of his passionate and personal and particular love for you. So my friends, I want to encourage you. May we never lose the wonder Would it be as if Jesus just died yesterday in the way we live today? And may we never stop giving him the glory. What a savior he is. What a king he is. So may all praise go to him. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I thank you thank you for taking us to Calvary this evening. I thank you that you've given us this divine and kind opportunity to stop and stare at the cross and to understand more this evening of what it all means. Oh Lord, I pray that we may never lose the wonder that it really would be as if you just died yesterday for me in the way we feel, in the way we sing, in the way we speak, in the way we live our lives. Lord, would we tell of your wonder and your praise?
Oh Lord, for all those that don't yet know you as Lord and Savior, I pray that today would be the day. Today there would be the day, Easter 2023, that they would look back on and say, that was the day. When I believed that Jesus is who he said he was. For years I've esteemed him not and rejected him, but today I've realized he's God. And he died in my place, and I want to follow him. Lord, I pray that that would be the story of those that don't know you this evening, and that they may find in you the sum of everything they had always hoped for.